Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we take a sweeping look at Japan's relationship with its other neighbors in the West, the European Union and Russia. Japan's trade and cultural ties with Europe date back centuries. Yet Japan's relationship with the EU and EU members is overlooked in the contemporary geopolitical landscape. Why is that? What values do Japanese and Europeans share? How will Brexit affect Japan, a country with historically tight relations with the United Kingdom? What values do Japanese and Europeans share? How will Brexit affect Japan, a country with historically tight relations with the United Kingdom? And what does the signing of new free trade and strategic cooperation agreements mean for the long-term health of the EU-Japan nexus? Our opening guests on the pod to discuss these questions and more are 2018 CSIS Strategic Japan Fellow and Keio University Professor Dr. Makito Tsuroka and Heather Conley, CSIS Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic. Mikito and Heather also evaluate the strategy of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's government in engaging Europe and describe the benefits to the United States of a closer Japan-EU relationship. After tackling EU-Japan, we turn to Japan's near neighbor to the northwest, Russia, to analyze the key issues in that bilateral linkage. Starting with the Soviet days and then moving to modern Russia, we look at the key issues that have shaped Moscow-Tohyo ties. Joining to analyze the one issue Japan can't quit is Dr. Yoko Hirose, also a 2018 Strategic Japan Fellow and professor at Keio University. Yoko is an expert on Japan's efforts to re-secure the Northern Territories. The Northern Territories are the southernmost isles in the Kuril Island chain between Northern Japan and Russia's East Coast. After the Second World War, control of those islands was transferred to the Soviet Union. However, Japan has long sought to reclaim the four closest islands, and the issue has now received specific focus from Shinzo Abe, who has tried to negotiate with Vladimir Putin on a new arrangement for sharing control over the islands. Abe's government has been unable to achieve a breakthrough yet. Yoko Hirose explains why. Now I'll turn it over to the editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Jeffrey Bean, who sat down with Dr. Makito Tsuroka and Heather Conley. Later, you'll hear from Dr. Hirose. Hi, my name is Jeff Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Kajit Asia. Our topic today is EU-Japan relations and also Japan relations with Russia. Uh, joining me today are Heather Connolly, director of the Europe program and senior vice president here at CSIS. Heather, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. And Dr. Makita Soroka, one of our Strategic Japan visiting fellows here at CSIS uh, for this time period. Uh, Makita, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So uh, I want to get started by touching on the topic of uh, the big picture mm-hmm. in Japan-EU relations and and ask you, Mikir, why is it important uh, to Japan, to the Abe government, uh, to improve the Japan-EU relationship? And how has this relationship evolved over time? Okay. Uh, one of the base, basic things is that uh, the security environment surrounding Japan has been deteriorating, getting worse, So, which means that uh, we need more partners. So partners, of course, uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance, that's, of course, the, the critical in terms of uh, defense of Japan. And uh, partners in the uh, Asian region, and particularly in Southeast Asian countries, are uh, getting more important. But at the same time, we need to go beyond that. And so, so the, the Europe is becoming more important for, for, for Japan. And uh, also, particularly in the context of Prime Minister Abe's value-based diplomacy, emphasizing sharing values with other countries, and so democracy, fundamental rights. And so in this context, 
And actually, the, 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 those countries with whom we share values, many of which are in Europe. So that's uh, the reality. So, so value-based diplomacy or uh, the, the sharing values and that agenda cannot be complete without um, thinking about uh, partners um, with, with Europe, in Europe. And that's it. Uh, I think there are three pillars of Europe-Japan and Japan-Europe relations, uh, one of which, of course, the first of which is uh, EU-Japan relations. And uh, last year, there were a series of uh, new developments in the Japan-EU relationship, and uh, the first of which was the, the conclusion of the EPA, the Economic Partnership Agreement, and that is the only remaining mega FTA among major economic powers. So EU and Japan occupy uh, 28% of world GDP and 37% of world trade. So it's, it's substantial. So the, and also the, it was really important because, uh, the, because of the, um, particularly in the context of uh, rising fears or concerns about uh, protectionism. So the, it was really significant that the EU and Japan showed that the idea of free trade is still alive. So the, particularly in the context of the Trump administration's uh, protectionist type of rhetoric, it was hugely important that the EU and Japan, the very big and two very big uh, the economic powers, uh, succeeded in, in, in concluding this. Of course, the, we have yet signed this agreement, so we are hoping to sign it uh, by the end of this year. And uh, we hope it to 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 come into force uh, next year. The, of course, it remains to be seen whether that's really possible. But uh, that's that's our goal now. And uh, in parallel with uh, EPA, the Economic Partnership Agreement, uh, we have also um, uh, concluded uh, concluded our negotiations on what is called Strategic Partnership Agreement (SPA), and it covers uh, political and security cooperation or wide range of issues beyond EPA. So the, of course, the, 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 the very big agenda is how the EU and Japan can maintain the rules-based international order. And particularly this order is under pressure, not just by the rise of China or Russia. And also we are wondering oh, what, the, what, what, what sort of directions the Trump administration's policy is going to be. So in this context, the, 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 the EU-Japan cooperation in global governance, the rules-based international order, that's uh, becoming, I think, more, more significant, important. And the, the second pillar is NATO-Japan. So NATO-Japan relations, that's not quite old. It started after the end of the, end of the Cold War, but uh, it became more substantial or in the last uh, decade or so. It started uh, with the NATO-Japan cooperation in Afghanistan, despite the fact that uh, Japan didn't send troops there, but uh, various civilian cooperation took place with NATO in Afghanistan. And uh, now the, the current agendas, the new agendas include uh, cyber security, missile defense, maritime security, including the maritime domain awareness things and uh, standardization of equipment. And these are, I think from a Japanese point of view, the, the very important agendas to, 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 to explore with, with NATO. And the final pillar of uh, Japan's relations with Europe has to do with a bilateral relations with individual European countries, particularly when, when it comes to security and defense, foreign policy cooperation, you know, it, 
the, the particularly the UK and France are, are, are very important and uh, with those countries and Japan has been having uh, two plus two ministerial meetings bringing together foreign defense ministers and uh, in addition to, to political and strategic dialogue and we have uh, uh, we have a joint military exercises as well and uh, defense equipment cooperation is also something we are doing we are starting to do with both the UK and France and also the, the enhancing intelligence cooperation I mean intelligence sharing is also a very uh, becoming more important so, so so we have a very multifaceted uh, relationship with, with with Europe because on the European side, the things are very complicated. You have the EU, NATO, and individual, individual countries. So we need to deal with all. So the, inevitably, this relationship is very complicated, multifaceted. I want to ask you, you mentioned the third pillar focusing on bilateral relations uh, within, within countries within the EU, uh, specifically the UK and France on the foreign policy and security front. Of course, Brexit is happening. And how does this, uh, from your perspective, influence uh, Japan's relations with the EU. That's a huge headache. And uh, the, the biggest reason is that uh, Japan has depended too much on the UK as a gateway to the EU, not just in e economic terms, but also in political and security terms as well. In economic terms, of course, the Japanese companies have invested heavily in the UK, and uh, they, they have many and, uh, assembly factories, including car factories, and from the UK, they uh, export cars and other things to to the EU market. So in that sense, of course, the UK is 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 without doubt a gateway to the EU market. But at the same time, in political terms as well, the in terms of thinking about political security cooperation, always we talk to London first, and that that sort of practice has been there for for decades actually. So the in that sense, in that context, the 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 fact that Britain is leaving the EU it's going to mean that uh, we will no longer be able to, to use the UK as a gateway to the EU. So the, that's a huge headache. And also thinking about EU-Japan context, the, the Britain leaving the EU means that uh, the, the significance of the EU as a particularly security partner for Japan is going to decline. So that's uh, just a reality. So we have to, 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 to face the reality. And Heather, I want to turn to you and ask how a stronger Japan-EU relationship, uh, how it helps the United States, and are there any issue areas where you feel this is particularly salient and relevant? Well, I mean, what you've just heard beautifully articulated is a defense of the international system. Um, and that's what the U.S.-EU-Japan relationship represents. Um, when it comes to the international economic system, that we believe in free markets. We believe in allowing uh, the markets to play a strong role. We do not believe in you know, strictly state-directed, state-owned uh, dynamics. We believe in free democracies and elections, not presidents for life, not authoritarians that will perpetuate their leadership and their power structures. We believe in those values. And I think what, what's been our, our crime, if you will, is taking all of that for granted. And now the system is under profound challenge, both from regional powers, 
like China, like Russia, like Iran, that are testing who's going to enforce these international rules if I break them. And whether it's use of chemical weapons or what have you, or who's going to challenge me if I break the international trading rules. Now, some of that is happening, though, from within. The United States is now breaking and challenging the very rules that it created 70 years ago from the ashes of the Second World War, uh, creating the Bretton Woods process and a strong system. But that system has to adapt to the 21st century, and it's struggled to, to adapt. And now we have challengers both within and without. So what this represents is a real holding the line, if you will, for the international system. The question is whether the uh, EU-Japan relationship is sufficient to hold that line if the U.S. continues to challenge its own construction, if you will. And, and that's the very big challenge. But as a, really, those are the three buckets. The economic relationship, which is so vital for the free trading system, but you can't have economic prosperity without security. Uh, and that is why the NATO-Japan relationship and making sure our alliances are strong when there are rule breakers. We sometimes have to deploy forces um, to, to, to prevent further rule breaking. And then it's that values bucket. And that's the part that we really don't articulate well. But without the the values, we would have neither the economics nor the security system. That's the glue. And so we're seeing a great experiment, if you will, uh, of the U.S. testing the very system that it created 70 years ago. Makino, you mentioned that the Japan-EU FTA negotiation has recently been finalized but not signed. This could have a huge impact, particularly in conjunction with the completion of TPP-11, without the United States, of course. What are some of the things that may change between the EU and Japan as the FTA agreement goes into effect? And how does this help Japan's economy? Um, In the first place, even before EPA, the EU-Japan economic trade and economic relationship has been quite big, quite solid, quite established. So the the, the FTA is not is not to is, is not going to change everything. So the the according to government estimate, the economic benefit, the economic effect of uh, EU-Japan FTA amounts to, in the Japanese case, the one percent of GDP. Of course, it sounds very small. But uh, given the fact that Japanese GDP is quite substantial, the 1%, it's still quite substantial. So the 1% uh, GDP effect, economic effect, that's, uh, that's uh, something we, we, we are going to expect. And compared to other FTAs that Japan is doing, the, for, for example, the TPP-11, without the United States, I'm afraid, the, according to the same uh, economic uh, estimate, uh, it's going to be the 1.5% around 1.5% of GDP. So the, together with the TPP-11 and uh, the, the Japan EPA, then the 2.5% of economic impact, that's, uh, that's quite substantial. Um, the, so so, so the, that, that's a, from a macroeconomic point of view, that, that, that's a, the, the quite substantial part. But uh, at the same time, the, from the beginning, actually, this EP, Japan EU EPA, has a sort of a defensive purpose, given the fact that the EU and South Korea had the FTA before EU-Japan. And uh, one of the negative consequences of that was that uh, the tariffs, EU tariffs 
on cars from South Korea that has been decreasing. And that causes a comparative disadvantage for Japanese companies. So the, the Japanese business community first wanted to address that uh, uh, gap or disadvantage by concluding a FTA with the European Union. And on the European side, they knew that. And that was why initially they were quite reluctant to, to, to start uh, negotiating this agreement with Japan. But uh, so, 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 so I think that in order to secure level playing field with other countries who have already EPA with the EU, that, that, that's also a, the, the, the very big part of our, our, our thinking. And Heather, on the other hand, where does this leave the United States uh, in its position in the global trading order? Obviously, over the last few months, we've seen uh, steps taken by the Trump administration that are not considering new agreements, not just that, but also uh, initiating steps that potentially muddy the waters uh, in the international trading order. So where does this leave an agreement like uh, TTIP, for example, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, uh, and other uh, potential uh, trade engagements with the EU? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, again, just just a few lessons learned from what's just happened over the last 15 months of the Trump administration. We pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but it went forward. We're not stopping this just because we're pulling out of it. It's moving forward. The EU-Japan uh, FTA and the EU has been on a terror with their free trade agreements. EU-Mexico, EU-Mercosur is, is next up. They've done an EU, of course, the EU-Korea uh, deal, EU-Australia. I mean, they are, you know, very proactive in the free trade environment. But again, the second lesson, so no one's stopping if the U.S. pulls out. But the second question is, the U.S. prefers to do all of this bilaterally. They've moved away from a plurilateral framework. And we're seeing real evidence when you get all these choppy, and I would argue in some ways the EU's trying to do the same with a lot of bilateral FTAs. That is not the most efficient approach to it. You end up creating inconsistencies. You really need to do these broader frameworks. And that was what the disappointment and the, the vision behind both the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. If you got the two most significant trade and investment blocks in the world coming together, that's the new rules-based system for trade. And that's what makes all of this so frustrating, because we literally walked away from p defining in, in, the, in the new economy our rules, enshrining those. But we're taking a very different approach to that. So to get back to sort of wither TTIP, quite frankly, there's been very confusing messages uh, from the Trump administration when German Chancellor Angela Merkel came here a year ago to meet with President Trump in the Oval Office. There was some confusion. I don't know if it's been resolved that uh, telling President Trump that the European Union is like a bilateral trade negotiation because you're negotiating with the the, um, uh, the block. But he seemed to want a U.S.-German uh, trade agreement. And I think they went around that conversation quite a bit. So you will occasionally hear, yes, we want to do this. But, but quite frankly, I think this administration not only is right now going to be seized in the next month and a half with bilateral tariff negotiations with basically every country in the world, and I'm not sure how that's going to resolve itself. You have 
the NAFTA renegotiation, which is a key priority for this administration. Uh, also, Corus uh, trying to renegotiate the U.S.-Korean uh, trade agreement, which is a big question mark. I just simply think, even if there's will, and I think there's a question mark over there's will, there's no bandwidth uh, for this administration to launch uh, a negotiation with the European Union, which is, this is the largest trade investment block in the world. And it's going to be, it was difficult under the Obama administration. We just barely got started, to be honest with you. TPP was taking the priority and the focus of the administration, understandably. Some, and, and, and finally, some have concluded that maybe the uh, Obama administration should have thought about going and doing TTIP first, because there would have been perhaps less uh, resistance, uh, because our, uh, in some ways, the, the constituency that didn't support the agreement may have wanted a closer relationship with labor standards and regulatory standards. I don't know. That's a hypothetical. But I just don't see in any foreseeable future uh, an EU-US agreement. What will likely happen, and what's already begun, is a US-UK free trade agreement. That's where there's enthusiasm both in Congress and in the administration to pursue. And the UK has even thought about joining the TPP-11. Uh, so it could be 12, but it's not going to be the US, so there's going to be the UK. Dr. Soroka, a big component of your analysis is the balance that the EU and Japan can create relative to China. And China is a, a principal concern uh, for Tokyo underlining a lot of these discussions. So are there certain issue areas uh, and uh, factors that China is con is compelling or contributing to uh, Japan's desire to expand ties with the European Union, and how does, to a lesser extent, the strategic partnership agreement play into that? Okay, there are actually the China. When it comes to China factor in Japan-Europe relations, there are actually two aspects. One is that uh, China could be a sort of driver for bringing Japan and Europe closer together. Um, because in the first place, uh, the Japan and EU or Japan and Europe as a whole share values, uh, while China doesn't. So the, there are good reasons to believe that uh, the, 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 in terms of thinking about uh, addressing the rise of China and Japan and Europe share interests and values. But at the same time, the China factor can be a negative one because the Japanese perceptions and the European perceptions on China cannot be quite identical. And to be quite honest, there is a huge, still a huge gap between the two, uh, between the perceptions uh, in Japan and in Europe. So the, yeah, I think the, the, the still the reality is that uh, many Japanese believe that Europe, Europe is too soft on China. And at the same time on the European side, and many people believe that uh, Japan is too tough on China. And uh, the Japan-China relationship is always tense. And uh, there are many Europeans who don't want to be dragged into China-Japan conflict or tensions. So this is a, even from my personal perspective, it's, it's quite understandable because uh, they don't want to be be, 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 be entrapped, yes, of course, uh, because uh, they, some Japanese uh, openly argue that uh, we don't want to be affected by the deterioration of Europe-Russia relations, for example. So the, it's, a, it's sort of understandable sort of mindset, I would say. But uh, the scene from Japan, what we have been trying to do is to generate shared perceptions on 
Asian security issues. And of course, the China is a big factor in that. So the, in various strategic dialogue frameworks between Japan and Europe, including Japan-EU strategic dialogue and the other venues, we have been trying to tell uh, what is taking place in Asia. And uh, we have been sharing our assessment and, uh, with, with Europeans. But of course, it's still undeniable that uh, in geographical terms, Chinese threat or China's challenge is still far away seen from Europe. And for us, for Japan, the, it's a daily challenge. For example, the Chinese government vessels are coming to the waters in the East China Sea surrounding the Senkaku Islands. And the, the, the Chinese are challenging the Japanese control of the area on a daily basis. So we have to deal with that. And that sort of a sense of urgency is it's lacking in Europe. Yeah, that's that's quite understandable, but uh, the I think the the one way um, to move forward is to broaden our agenda, China agenda between Japan and Europe, because uh, the Japanese tend to focus too much on the military security things uh, centered on the East China Sea, but there are other agenda items, and also the good news is that uh, the concerns about China has been increasing quite rapidly in Europe. So the one of the reasons for that is the, the Chinese uh, investment, particularly investment in strategic sectors. And so particularly in Germany, there is a huge, huge uh, um, increase of concerns about uh, Chinese uh, M&A. And so so that, that, that's one thing. And also human rights situation, deterioration of human rights situation in China is causing a lot of concerns in Europe, and uh, that's one th another thing. And also the China's approach to Central and Eastern European countries in the framework of uh, 16 plus 1. So the China's growing influence in uh, sort of economically vulnerable countries like Greece or the other Central and Eastern European countries, including the Balkans. So the creeping expansion of China's economic uh, weight and that is being translated into political power, political influence. That causes a huge concern, particularly in Brussels and in other uh, parts of the EU. So they, and also the another the the longstanding issue is the the protection of intellectual property rights (IPR) and uh, and also the the cyber security. The the concern is growing in Europe. So, so the for, for Japan, I think the homework is how we can uh, broaden the China agenda between the Japan and Europe, going beyond just talking about Senkaku or East China Sea. Because the, it, at the end of the day, in terms of thinking about uh, exerting influence on China, then if there is any hope of outside countries exerting influence on China, then we, we, we need to act together. So the, from a Japanese perspective, the getting Europe on board, that matters a lot. Of course, the U.S.-Japan cooperation in dealing with China is, is vital, but uh, the more partners, the better in, in, t in terms of uh, thinking about how to deal with China. I think it's really interesting you talked about uh, Japan's goal of uh, creating uh, additional relationships and building additional partnerships uh, to leverage with respect to China. Of course, uh, one of the other factors shaping Japan's closer relations with the European Union is the state of Japan's relationship with Russia on the, the other side of the coin. 
Uh, Heather, I'm going to ask you to put your uh, SVP for Eurasia hat on for a second and think about, from a U.S. perspective, what are the factors that frame how we think about uh, EU-Russia relations and uh, Japan-Russia relations? Yeah, it's, and again, it's a great question. And, and to, to broaden out uh, this framework, um, we have to see where when Russia illegally annexes a territory in Europe, why Japan must respond very strongly to that is exactly why the European Union must react very strongly to reclamation islands and to the violation of the Law of the Sea Treaty in the East China Sea or the South China Sea. We have to see this normatively as uh, enforcing the international legal order that we are here to protect. That's why there has to be mutual understanding, and you're absolutely right, broadening out the framework. I think, just to go back a little bit, I promise I will answer your question. Um, The EU, for far too long, viewed Asia through a China prism economically. That the security issues, that was for the Americans to sort out. They would benefit from the $5 trillion that travels through uh, uh, the South China Sea, many European goods, and they would concentrate on the economic relationship, which is understandable, but not acceptable. And so the U.S. had been trying very much uh, to broaden the EU's perspective on the region, EU-ASEAN, to look at that and get more involved in that architecture, look at the broader perspective. perspective. But to understand, yes, we always have strong regional concerns. It's our neighborhood. It's where we feel the most vulnerable and threatened. But if we don't see the the, the, the jointness of this is a violation of the international legal system, then we will see things very differently. Russia. So, um, it, you know, in some ways, we had been getting lots of warning signs um, about Russian behavior as far back as 2007, 2008. Uh, particularly with the Russian invasion of Georgia and the the literal occupation of two territories, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, we didn't respond to that very strongly. So it cannot be surprising uh, when Russia took even more aggressive steps in annexing Crimea and its incursion into eastern Ukraine. And then, of course, uh, the the most horrible manifestation of not only 10,000-plus that have been killed in Ukraine, but the um, uh, the uh, the downing of MH17, which was such a shock to everyone, it mobilized the international community to place uh, sanctions against uh, Russia, the EU, U.S., Japan, and uh, for a time Russia was quite isolated, and then over time that isolation starts to break down. Uh, in, in the Kremlin's view, the uh, the international community particularly the U.S., will always need Russia for something. We will need them for North Korea. We will need them for the Iran nuclear agreement. We will need them now for Syria. Um, And ultimately resolving the Ukraine crisis. You know, they are solving the problem that they have created. Um, and these, and then the isolation breaks down a little bit. And what I saw the the Russian opening to Japan was, um, you know, trying to seek resolution of the disputed islands uh, that have been un, unresolved. And this was very attractive, I think, to to the Japanese government because. Uh, what they were seeing was a closeness of Beijing and Moscow, uh, that we, in some ways, the West was forcing Russia to go towards Beijing as a financing alternative, technology alternative. 
and that had to be broken apart. So I think there was a an opening that Prime Minister Abe was willing to take to see if they could talk to Russia. It broke out of Russia's isolation. Um, but yet, again, what we saw, uh, when you have a nationalistic Russia, they are not going to be in a position to be generous and offer conditions. What have they done? They've beaten their nationalistic breast. Uh, Prime Minister Medvedev has visited there. They're putting military assets on those disputed uh, islands, and we're back where we started from. So this is—it's complex. That's why we have to stay joined at the hip as we're talking together about the future of Russia, the future of China, how this impacts us regionally and internationally. Um, and the, it's breaking down in the European Union as well, the Italian elections, the results, inconclusive government thus far. You have other countries, Hungary, uh, Cyprus, sometimes Greece, breaking a unanimity on maintaining a strong front of those sanctions. So I think um, the Kremlin views that uh, the West may have the watch, as we say, but he has the time and he can outweigh us because we'll always need Russia. And he's banking on our needs are greater than our desire to preserve international law. And I think we've got to uh, turn it around that we have the time and Mr. Putin and Mr. Chi have the watch. Looking at the the issue, you mentioned the issue of the Kuril Islands and Northern Territories. Um, how important in the grand scheme of U.S. diplomatic thinking is this particular resolution between uh, or negotiation between uh, Japan and Russia? And does any of the tension potentially that's created uh, with the result of the result of this does any of that bleed into geopolitics of the Arctic? which we also have to work with Russia on. So it's, it's very interesting because both China and Russia now uh, are, are converging in the Arctic, and uh, it's a very interesting. Now we have Belt and Road in the Arctic, uh, this, the, the polar Silk Road. Um, so I, I think for me, what uh, the, the Russian government has been expert at for decades is exploiting weaknesses. And this is a weakness in the Japan-Russian relationship. It can be exploited. How, how desperate would a Japanese government be for resolution? What would they be willing to give up? Um, could they remove Japan from the sanctions and break that Western consensus. I mean, this would be what the Kremlin would be interested in exploring. It's exploiting vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Um, but as I said, right now, Russian nationalism is growing, uh, and I think they cannot be seen as giving any space here. So I, th I think it's a uh, the rise of Russian nationalism and their own national identity will prevent resolution. But they are very interested in breaking Japan away. Uh, I'm sure they would offer support in trying to be able to communicate with Beijing. I think the challenge here in the Beijing-Moscow dynamic is that we have a, a switch. We now have China as the senior partner, Russia as the junior partner. And that was not how it was during the Cold War. Uh, you have, I think, a, a growing Chinese presence, not only if you, as you look at in the, the depopulation of the Russian Far East, you have Belt and Road through Central Asia, you have, and through the Eastern Mediterranean, you have 16 plus one, which is the Western Balkans and Central Europe, and now you have the Arctic coming above and China's Belt and Road initiative there. So for me, as I look at the map, you have a, a China is encircling 
Russia economically, uh, I think China sees a great advantage in, in energy and land and resources that it can certainly support China's future. And so as much as Mr. Putin concentrates on the West's encirclement and the West's desire for those natural resources, I think it's a more helpful conversation with the uh, Russian experts to think about how China's future uh, and their position may actually be weakening Russia. So it's a it's a very complex conversation. Um, the resolution uh, it would be certainly a positive for Japanese-Russian relations, but right now I see it more uh, Russia's motivated by playing a conquer and divide game uh, rather than really seeking genuine resolution. But you have to keep that dialogue open to see if those opportunities can be found. Excellent. And Bettina, anything you wanted to add on the big picture of Japan-Russian relations? Um, I think what is important is to look at uh, strategic landscape of Northeast Asia. So the, whether Japan likes it or not, Russia is there, and uh, Russia is a player, So the, and also China is rising. So in that context, having a work-functioning relationship with Russia is always important. The, of course, the territories, islands are important from a Japanese perspective, but even without thinking that, Russia itself, as a strategic actor, in the strategic landscape of Northeast Asia itself is important, regardless what happens uh, in territorial negotiations, or regardless what happens in other parts of the world, I mean. So the, yes, still, it's undeniable that uh, the Japanese perceptions on Russia may be a bit different from uh, those in the US or those in Europe, particularly the UK, particularly after the poisoning incident. The, but uh, the, there are, I think, uh, good reason for Japan to be sort of a having its own views on Russia because the the Russian behaviors in the Far Eastern parts surrounding Japan have been much, much, much less assertive than what Russians have been doing in Ukraine, Crimea, or Syria. So the, in those areas, Russians have been very violent, using force, but. Uh, when it comes to Asia, they have been, yes, they have been doing some military buildup in the Far Eastern region and the Russian aircraft coming to close the Japanese airspace and uh, we do scramble against, the, against those. But uh, compared to what Russians are doing in Europe, uh, Middle East, Russian behaviors in, 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 in the Far East is, are still quite much less assertive. So, so the Russia, for Japan, in first and foremost, is a Russia in the Far East. So that is why I think uh, the, the Japanese perceptions and the threat perception about Russia remains still quite low. But uh, in any case, the, 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 in terms of dealing with the rise of China, how we can, what sort of a relationship we can have with Russia is, is always uh, quite important. But, uh, but of course, we, we don't have any illusion because uh, Yes, some people say that uh, we can use Russia and the, the, the Russian Japan ganging up against China, but it's just impossible. So we are more realistic. And from my point of view, I think the, the very realistic sort of a, a goal in terms of thinking about uh, our relations with Russia is that uh, at least we need to prevent Russia 
from from taking a united front with China against Japan on history issues, for example, and the territorial issues. So how to prevent that is is a huge, huge thing itself. If we can do that, then it, it itself it is uh, quite uh, a good thing for Japan. But uh, now the another headache which is coming is the missile defense. So Japan is going to introduce the Aegis Ashore system. And given the Russian support for China's opposition to the third missile defense deployment in South Korea, then it's highly, highly likely, and uh, uh, highly, highly likely that uh, the Russia is going to fiercely oppose Japan's idea of introducing Aegis Ashore. And uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and others have already been quite vocal in opposing Japan's introduction of Aegis Ashore. And how we can address this, I, I, I think it's going to be a huge challenge for Japan. Dr. Makita Soroka, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Heather Connolly, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Rosa, I want to ask you, for, for those of us that are not as familiar with the Japan-Russia relationship, uh, what are some of the focal points of that relationship from your perspective? Yeah, uh, Japan's basic diplomatic policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia has embraced three elements. First, uh, Tokyo has sought to bridge Japan-Russia relations to foster a suitable partner in the Asian Pacific region. Second, Japan has attempted to develop Japan-Russia relations in areas such as politics, economics, security, and defense culture, sports, and international society. Third, Japan has tried to conclude a peace treaty with Russia to resolve the Northern Territories issue. To make progress on these issues, Japanese officials think political negotiations and trust building between the prime minister and president and foreign ministers is key. They also believe that improving relations with Russia would be profitable for Japanese interest. However, uh, for Japan, the most important task of Japan-Russia relations is certainly resolution of territorial issue. The current Japan-Russia relation without peace treaty is abnormal. However, they cannot conclude the peace treaty without the resolution of territorial issue by mutual concessions. Now, you mentioned the issue, uh, the territorial issue, the issue of the Northern Territories. What do you think is driving Prime Minister Abe uh, to concentrate so much on resolving uh, this issue with, with President Putin? Yeah, I think Prime Minister Abe has been concentrating on resolving the territory issue by not only official reasons, but also private reasons. Officially, there are two reasons, I think. First, the resolution of the territorial issue is unavoidable to deepen the relation with Russia. Secondly, Japan has to hurry to reach some kind of resolution because uh, most of former residents of Northern Territories have already died and a small number of older residents remain alive to wish you for the average resolution. In addition, Japanese people worry about the Russification and militarization of the islands are proceeding rapidly. Then, privately, Abe wants to leave his name in the Japanese history by the effective breakthrough 
in Japan-Russia relations. To understand his desire of it, we should think about his background of family records. His late grandfather, former Prime Minister, Prime Minister uh, Nobusuke Kishi has been sought to make the Japan USSR resolution worse, relation worse uh, by the revision of Japan US Security Authority. In addition, his late father, former Foreign Minister Sintaro Abe, made great efforts on making good relations with then President Gorbachev. That's why the Russian issue is very important for Prime Minister Abe, and he wants to leave some fruit with Russia during his term. On the other hand, Japanese people are relatively critical on Abe's initiative for Russia. Many of people think that Japan is just giving uh, Russia too, too much, especially economic interest, without any returns. The opinions of Japanese media and business society are not monolith and really differ depends on their stance or actual benefits. Some media evaluate Abe's initiative very positive. On the other hand, some media criticize Abe strongly. However, it is also true that Japanese media are not so interested in this issue compared with other foreign countries such as the US, China, North Korea's affairs, and uh, domestic political issues. It's really interesting you talk about the, the Japanese media's perspective not being monolithic uh, on this particular issue. From your assessment as a scholar, uh, in your view, obviously the prime minister is placing heavy focus and emphasis on this issue. How likely is it that Japan and Russia will reach an agreement over the northern territories in the near future, say in the next 10 years, perhaps after Prime Minister Abe's term ends, uh, but sometime in the near future, do you think it will be resolved? Unfortunately, I'm really pessimistic on the agreement over the territorial issue in the future. Japanese authorities think that now is the time to resolve the territorial issue because changing the border needs strong political power uh, because it harms national interest. And Putin is a very strong leader. But Putin is a really cunning politician, and Russia's domestic political situation is not so stable recently, so I cannot imagine that he would release some territories. From your perspective, how does the Japan-Russia relationship affect and, and fit into Japan's other uh, relationships and priorities in the region, whether you're talking about uh, the relationship with China, which you mentioned briefly earlier, uh, situation on the Korean Peninsula, uh, so throughout the Indo-Pacific, but also globally, and particularly with, the, uh, with respect to the alliance with the United States? Unfortunately, uh, current Japan-Russia relationship have no good effects in the region and globally. On the other hand, it is one of serious factors for Japan to keep the good relation with the United States because Russia has often criticized the Japan-U.S. alliance, calling Japan a vassal state of the United States, although the Japan-U.S. alliance is the most important in the Japanese foreign policy. 
However, Japan as an Asian country should contribute to the Asian peace, including North Korean problem. And the good Japan-Russia relations are necessary for this aim. I think Japan should think about the Russian factor in wider and global perspective, keeping good relations with the United States. I want to ask a, another follow-up question. How much do you think the relative closeness of the relationship between Vladimir Putin and President Xi Jinping of China contributes to the difficulty for Japan in tackling this issue, particularly as this year is a seminal year in Japan-China relations, and that Prime Minister Abe will also be spending a lot of time focusing on the uh, Chinese-Japanese relationship. Yeah, actually, uh, Japan's situation in Asia is very bad now, and um, Japan's relation with China uh, North Korea and South Korea, uh, all of them are very bad. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Putin tried to good uh, relation with China, especially after the um, Ukraine crisis. Um, actually, it's not good uh, situation for Japan, uh, especially because uh, China and uh, Russia uh, can share the uh, perspective about the historical problem. They uh, is insisted that China and Russia kept the peace of the uh, Asia after the uh, World War II. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Japan was uh, very able in the World War II especially for the Asian states. So uh, Japanese uh, stance in this problem is very bad. So Japan is worried about the uh, closeness between uh, Russia and uh, China, especially on the historical perspective. Then such kind of historical perspective is bad effect on the territorial issue for Japan, not only Northern Territorial problem, but also Senkaku problem, uh, Takeshima Tokuto problem, and so on. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rose. That's a really interesting connection to consider with respect to the, the historical legacy issues and the various territorial uh, considerations that Japan has uh, in the East China Sea, uh, in the Dr. Tokushima uh, dispute, and uh, also uh, up in the Northern Territories. Dr. Rose, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. That's our show. Very special thanks to Dr. Makito Tsuroka, Dr. Yoko Hirose, and Heather Conley for joining us. If you want to learn more, links to Dr. Tsuroka's and Dr. Hirose's full Strategic Japan papers and summary blogs are available in the show notes. And on Kajit Asia, you can read fresh written analysis, first on Japan's challenge with North Korea's illegal fishing in the Sea of Japan, and a second post on the state of progress in South Asia's efforts to achieve regional energy integration. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemulangsari. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on csis.org. Stop by our Reconnecting Asia site to check out our latest feature on South Korea's infrastructure vision. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast with Bonnie Glazer and Carl Minzner on how China's return to authoritarianism is undermining its rise. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.